So uh, last week in our uh, sermon series that we're, we're back into now that the Easter season is done, Daniel remaining faithful in a faithless generation. Uh, we are, well, last week we looked at the components of pride. Today we're going to continue uh, to have a look at pride. We're going to use the same passage that we used last week. And uh, we're going to be looking at what does pride lead to and then how can we be freed from it. So that's where we're headed this morning. I'm going to pray and then I'll read a portion of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. So let me pray. Lord, I just love that, that song, Speak, O Lord. Um, there's just so many good words in that song that, that talk about you planting your word and your truth deep in our hearts so that it's the thing that dictates how we think and how we speak and, and how we act. Lord, we pray this morning that uh, as the, the, the words in the song say, that you would examine our attitudes, you would examine our hearts, that you would point out things in us that need to be altered and changed by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might be able to live in a way that brings such honor to you and glory to you and has great impact on the lives of the people that you allow us to interface with on a daily basis so that our deeds of faith may increase, Lord. We love you. You are just such a good God. And, and we can all sit here this morning and think about this past week and how you were faithful yet again for another stretch of seven days to provide everything that we truly need. And we are thankful for that. And Lord, we know that as we sit here this morning, you are even working right now in our lives. And you are putting things together uh, to bring us solutions to problems that we face. And we're just thankful for that, that you do not grow tired, nor do you grow weary. When we're resting, you don't rest. You're always at work on our behalf. Uh, we appreciate that. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let me read to you Daniel 4, 28 through 33. And just uh, preface this a little bit. King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the ruler of Babylon, he had another dream in which he saw this big old tree in his dream getting cut down to its roots. And um, here we're picking up a bit here with, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar after, after that dream. So l let me read it to you. This is, this is a year after he received that dream. Daniel 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is, this, is, is not this great Babylon that I built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. 
His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He needed a, a, a petty and a manny. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of, his, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So Nebuchadnezzar found out, that that dream of that big tree that was cut down to a stump and ended up having dew all over it, cut down to its roots, he was that, that tree, this, this man, the ruler of the, the universe at that time, or at least the known world at that time, was reduced to basically nothing, right? And that's what we find out here in the passage I read is that um, he was, Nebuchadnezzar was the tree in, in his his dream. Here's what I want to focus on with you this morning. Pride turn, turns you into a beast. Pride turns you into a beast. Only God can humble the proud, and only God can exalt the humble. Pride turns us into a beast. Only God can humble the proud. Only God can exalt the humble. So let's start with that first one. Pride turns us into a beast. So last week we said the components of pride are this. Wanting to be in control, exalting ourselves above others, a desire for that, a desire to take credit for God's work and, and then carrying that desire out, and then believing that God owes us. Those are the components of pride, and it's this kind of thing, this, this, this nasty thing called pride is what turns us into a beast. Tim Keller has this to say, he says, one of the great ironies of sin is that when human beings try to become more than human beings, to be as gods, they fall to become lower than human beings. Isn't that interesting? When we try and be God in our life, what ends up happening is we become less than human we become like an animal. And if you think about how animals operate, let's think about that for a moment. Animals, they live governed by urges and instincts, don't they? They live by impulse. They're, they're programmed to survive and reproduce and react. They don't think in terms of right and wrong. They can't empathize. They can't understand another person's beliefs. They don't feel compassion. They, they simply respond to, to stimuli. Think about it. When a lion stalks a young giraffe, kills it, and eats it, is the lion thinking whether that was right or wrong? Nope. 
they're just doing what they were created to do, that instinct in them, acting by their urges, their impulses, they're hungry, there's food, I'm going to get it, I'm going to eat it so I can be satisfied. They're just reacting. They're just behaving out of instinct and impulse. And this is what pride does to us. It turns us into an animal in the sense that we're driven by the lust of our heart. We're driven by just reacting, right? Not thinking before doing. We turn into people who really don't have a a great concern for right and wrong. It's about our own personal interests. It's about our own survival, right? It's what's best for me and my pride, my family, my group, right? It turns us into a person that preys on others, that either views people as labor to exploit or roadblocks that need to be removed uh, so that we can reach our goal, Turns us into people that can't view another person or see the world from another person's perspective. Turns us into people that we can't, can't empathize with others. Nebuchadnezzar had no regard for his actions and how it affected other people. We see this in his life. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, as we've worked through Daniel, we found that he was willing to kill his closest advisors at a drop of the hat, Right? He was, I mean, Daniel calls him out. He says, and I think it's in verse 37 in our passage, or 27. But he, Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar, show mercy to the poor. Because evidently, he wasn't. Pride will turn you into a beast, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And it will drive you away from people. It will put wedges in your relationships. It will lead you to lonely places. You know, God's desire is he wants us to be fully human. That's why he's created us. And when we're fully human and we're, and we're living as we were designed to live and flourishing in that way, we fully reflect God's image by loving God with everything we've got and loving other people the way that we love ourselves. That's what we were created to be. That's what it means to be fully human. But pride wants us to go in the complete opposite direction that leads to a complete opposite destination. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, it talks about this destination that pride leads us to. And I appreciate how the message paraphrases these verses. I'm going to read them to you. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. God wants to make us a beauty. Pride wants to turn us into a beast. Look, we're all on that continuum, aren't we? Between beast and beauty. When 
you know, it, it, and when you think of the problems that you have in your life right now, think of them. We all got them. But when you think of them, I'm willing to bet that the reason they are problems is because you are acting more like a beast than a beauty. You're trying to be in control instead of trusting God, and so you're full of anxiety and insecurity, and you're extremely controlling with your spouse and your kids and your coworkers. You're trying to exalt yourself above others, and so you're full of arrogance and envy and, and jealousy, and you always have to be right, and things always have to be done your way. You're looking down your nose at people because they don't have it all together, and you're looking down your nose at people that have what you don't have but what you want. You're taking credit for God's work in your life. And so you think you deserve everything you have in your life because you believe that you've produced it all. You've earned it. And so you're not walking around with a heart of gratitude that says all the good of my life is really a gift from God out of his rich grace and mercy. And you know what? The beast doesn't want you to hear this right now. The beast in you is just angry. Who's, who, how can Shane say that, right? The beast in you wants to believe that everyone else is the blame for your problems. That it's the beast in everyone else, not the beast in you. The beast in you wants to justify your beastly actions. The very same actions that you so strongly denounce in other people. Perhaps there is... No relationship that causes our beastliness to flare up more than marriage. Amen? That's back at me. Right? And so for those of us who are married in this room, I think it is helpful to ask, in what ways am I acting like a beast in my marriage as compared to a beauty? If you are not married... Ask the same question regarding your closest relationship. Another way to examine your heart for pride is how you view the poor. And I think that's why Daniel called Nebuchadnezzar out for how he was treating the poor. Because it is a litmus test um, to determine, you know, and to assess the pride that's in your own heart. O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. It is verse 27. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the, poor, to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. When you see a homeless person, what thoughts fill your head? Do you see them as trash? Do you see them as lazy? Do you see them as unimportant, worthless, below your level? A lost cause? Do you see them broken, desperately in need of God's grace, just like you? Instead, are you moved with compassion? You know, a proud heart can't feel compassion. You know why I can't feel compassion? Proud heart can't feel compassion because it looks at people that are hurting and says, if they just worked harder, if they just would do better like I've done, then they would be happy and not hurting like me. So there's no compassion. It's their fault. Now, with every problem, that person has made choices that have, you know, led to them being there. But there's so much more to it. Something, because I, I deal with this, this I, I, I'm always preaching to myself. 
Something I have to tell myself repeatedly as I see people, work with people, is if I experience what they experience, would I be doing half as good as them? We're never comparing apples to apples. If I had their family, if I was treated the way they were treated growing up, if I didn't have opportunities like they did, would I be doing half as good as they're doing? Pride turns us into a beast. Number two, only God can humble the pride, proud. So we've talked about pride. While it's easy to see in other people, it's extremely difficult to see in ourselves. And I believe that only God's grace can enable us to see the pride in our heart. Only he can enable us to detect it. And then only he can really help us to overcome it. And besides, if we had the ability in and of ourselves to detect it and overcome it, then we would just be proud that we're no longer prideful. We would be prideful in our humility that we got ourselves, saved ourselves from our pride. In order for us to be truly rescued from pride, our rescue, it has to come from God. And you know what? It is absolutely sheer grace at all that God decides to, like that he's even willing to rescue us from our pride. Like, it is just so much grace and mercy that he works to free us from it. Take Nebuchadnezzar, for example. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man. This guy was the meanest dude that you would ever see. I mean, he, like we talked about, he had people killed. Is this another day? Yeah, he's not doing what I want. Kill him. Right? We see Daniel's like saying, you treat the poor horribly. And he was as arrogant and as proud as they come. Nebuchadnezzar's walking around in his palace. Look at this great city that I've built for myself out of my power. And yet, God out of his grace, God out of his grace decided to intervene for Nebuchadnezzar. To rescue him from his pride. And look at the means that God used to rescue Nebuchadnezzar. I want to look at with them with you this morning because I believe God still works today and utilizes the same means to wake us from prideful, our, our slumber in our prideful ways. So, look, God used signs, dreams, words, people, and circumstances to rescue Nebuchadnezzar from pride. I think he does it today. Let's look at signs. We're going to look at these really briefly. So God enabled Nebuchadnezzar to see some amazing displays of his power, right? Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They come out of the fiery furnace unscathed. One of the guards goes to even get close to the fiery furnace. He dies from the heat. They, these three men, they don't. You know, how amazing. And these, you know, these guys credit, you know, it's, it's God. It's, it's the God of the Bible. It's the Hebrew God that's enabling us to... To go through the fires unharmed. You know, I think of the person, I I think God still speaks to us in signs and and displays of his power today. You know, I think of the person who witnesses the miracle of the birth of their child, right? And it just becomes evident to them that there has to be a God. That this... There has to be a God behind all of this. I think of the person who is in a horrible accident that should have killed them, 
and God is the only explanation as to why they're still alive. I think of the person who has a family member that has just been so transformed by Jesus. I think of the person who stands at the Grand Canyon and just says, holy moly, for the first time, there has to be a God, an intelligent designer. My atheistic worldview can't be right. And so I ask you this morning, is God displaying his power in your life in order to let you know that he's in control and that he's the one that, should be, that you should be trusting in? God also pursued Neb through dreams. And I still believe that God can speak to people through dreams and visions. Like Nebuchadnezzar, sometimes God will give us a glimpse of the future to see that if we continue in the prideful on the prideful path that we're on, this is what we're going to be like. This is what your marriage is going to be like. This is what your family is going to be like. This is what your finances are going to be like. He gives us a glimpse. He like helps us to see that if I keep acting the way I'm acting, this is where I'm going to be in a year. This is where I'm going to be in two years, three years, five years. He's allowing us to see that, hey, if I keep hanging around these people, I'm going to end up just like them. If I, if I keep with this relationship, it's going to destroy other relationships. If I handle my money this way, I'm going to be broke in five years. If I keep engaging in this particular sin and I don't get the help I need, he gives us a vision of, of the destruction that's going to call cause. He'll sometimes even, you know, hey, if I don't get plugged into a church, he gives us a, a vision of what our life will be like in the future. And it'll be a life going back to our old patterns of behavior. And the question is, is God giving you glimpses, giving you a vision of what your life will be like if you do not come, go to him, surrender to him so he can free you from your pride. Because Neb didn't heed the warnings. And that's the problem. That's what we're seeing here. Neb got the dream from Daniel. And this was the second dream. or He had a second dream and got the interpretation from Daniel. This is the second time. And then 12 months later, our passage says in verses 29 and 30, that nothing has changed for Nebuchadnezzar. A year went by. Nothing changed, even though he's seen God's power at work, even though he's had these dreams and visions about the, what the future holds for him if he does not repent and believe in the God of the Bible. Ian Duigid, he writes this about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's thick skull, like our thick skulls. Sadly, the warning of the dream went unheeded by Nebuchadnezzar. A whole year went by which Nebuchadnezzar had plenty of opportunity to live his life differently. Instead, check this out. I hope you're not doing this. He mistook the merciful delay of God's judgment as a sign that the threat could safely be ignored. Mm. Are you ignoring some of God's warnings? Are you turning a deaf ear to them? In your pride, are you not willing to surrender and get off the course you're on? Notice what else God used to reach out to Neb. 
And it was, he used a person, he used people. God uses his people to reach out to us. He speaks through his people. He brings people into our life, just like God brought Daniel into Nebuchadnezzar's life, that can call us out, that can express concerns regarding the choices that we're making, that can tell us that we need help, that can tell us that we've got to make changes. And it's God trying to break into our heart of pride through his messengers. Are you hearing them? Are people coming to you, and are they bringing things up that need to be addressed? And are you listening? Also, you have to think, if nobody's coming up to you and addressing issues with you, is it because you're perfect and don't have issues? No, it very well could be that you don't give anybody an opportunity to do that. You haven't given anybody a hunting license to just call out your junk, right? And so you're just, you just, you're, you, yeah. And the reason is nobody wants to come and tell you what you're doing wrong because of how defensive you get when you're told. They know you won't hear it, and so they're not going to tell you. Are you in that spot? Is the beast in you brought you to a spot where nobody wants to call you out because of how the beast in you will snap back at them? Think about it. God also uses word to speak to Neb. Daniel was a prophet of God who spoke the words of God to Neb. And we are so blessed, as that last song, this song we, we, we sang, that we have God's word in written form. And so I ask you this morning, are you in it? Are you chewing on it? Are you digesting it? And then are you obeying it, applying it, and doing it? God wants to speak to you through his word. He wants to address your pride through his word. Is the beast telling you that, you know what, getting in God's word and really understanding it is not really that important or essential to life? And there really are no excuses in this day and age. You can't say, man, that's just such a big book. I just don't get it. Look, there is so much help online. There are so many resources that you have access to that somebody who really wants to understand it They'll find people that can help them, and they'll find resources that can help them. The last thing we see God use to reach Neb are difficult circumstances. Nothing else was breaking through to Neb's, breaking into Neb's prideful heart. Neb was too content and at ease. He was too comfortable to hear any of God's warning sides, too under the spell of pride to get any of the warnings. Look, in verse 4, Neb says, check this out. I was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Neb was cozy and comfortable. He didn't see his need for God. He didn't see his need for a savior. He didn't see his need for help. He couldn't see that God was really the one responsible for all the good in his life. And so what did God do? God heard him. That's what God did. God brought the pain. God stripped Nebuchadnezzar of his position, his kingdom, his wealth, his possessions, his power, his servants, and his sanity even. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar thought that he had controlled, everything that he thought that he had produced and created with his own power was stripped away from him. And the most powerful person in the world had become the weakest least powerful person 
in the entire world. The richest man in the world became the poorest man in the world. Nothing gets our attention. There's pain. When life is easy, when life is comfortable, when life is going as planned, there's usually not much motivation for us to examine ourselves and evaluate ourselves. But when things go haywire, when things and people leave us, when, when people hurt us, when the unexpected happens, when our backs are against the wall, when we've encountered a problem that we can't solve, we're more likely to try and figure out different paths to pursue, aren't we? We're more likely to have some introspection. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem of Pain. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pride was so deeply entrenched in Nebuchadnezzar's heart that he had to be stripped of everything and placed in a situation that he could not overcome so that he would finally know, as verse 34 tells us, um, well, it's so that he would finally do what verse 34 tells us, lift his eyes to heaven. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, man, God was not cool to Neb. Like, that was mean. He took everything away from him and caused him to go insane. This doesn't sound like love. And I thought God was a loving God. Don't you see that this was the most loving thing that God could have done for Nebuchadnezzar? The worst thing that could have happened to Nebuchadnezzar is that he would have continued on in his ease and comfort and in his very, very prideful, arrogant ways, destined to hear at Jesus' return, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Right? Look, if you put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't you, wait, no, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't you see God pursuing you through signs, visions, and dreams, his people, his word, and your circumstances? He may even be pursuing you through this message this morning. I think he is. Will you let go of your pride that says, I have to be in control? That says, I've got to be better than everybody else. That says, I'm responsible for the good in my life. That says, God owes me. Will you lift your eyes to Jesus? Will you give him permission to take over your life? Will you give him permission, like Neb did, to resurrect you? If you're a Christian here this morning, is he trying to speak to you about your pride through signs, visions, people, and his word? Are you listening? Are you hearing his warnings? Or will God have to bring the pain? Will God have to wound you so he can heal you? If you're a Christian and you're encountering difficult circumstances today, could it be that God is using them to destroy the pride in your heart and to increase your trust in him? Like Neb, is he stripping you bare so that... There is no doubt in your mind that when victory comes, it's because of God. 
you know, think about it. Neb had to be stripped bare. If he was allowed to have his sanity, but, you know, been stripped of everything else, Neb would have probably believed that it was his intellect that saved him from his plight. If, if Neb was allowed to keep his wealth, but was, you know, stripped of everything else, he probably would have thought in some way it was due to the wealth that he was able to get out of his nasty circumstance. But God stripped Nebuchadnezzar of everything so that there was nothing he could point to other than God for the reason for his restoration. That comes to him in verses 36 and 37. Sometimes, and I want you to hear this, God has to place us empty-handed in impossible circumstances where God is all we have so that we can realize that God is all we need. So that we can know his mighty power working within us, which is able to do in our lives immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Like the non-Christian, Christian, will you turn your eyes to Jesus? Will you bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation? All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Will you have faith that God's going to get you through what you're going through? And will you demonstrate that faith by taking the steps that he wants you to take? Will you do that? Pride turns us into the beast. Only God can humble the proud. And finally, God exalts the humble. So the question is, does God enjoy cutting people down to size just to cut people down to size and just so people know they're not as great as what they think they are? Um, Well, obviously, I think God wants us to have an accurate view of ourselves, but that's not the main reason why God humbles the proud. You know why God humbles the proud? Because it is the humble that God exalts. You see, God's whole overarching goal in humbling the proud is so that he can actually safely exalt the proud. That's what he wants to do. And so if God is humbling you, he's planning on exalting you. Whole purpose is art. He's going to do something important in your life. That's why he's humbling you. God's whole purpose in humbling Neb and stripping him of everything is so that he could then once again safely exalt Neb back to his place of being the king of the world. And that's exactly what God did. In verses 36 and 37, we read about it. And you can check out those verses. Because Neb was humbled, he was finally able to be a king that treated people well, that treated the poor well, that did things for the glory of God, that did things uh, right, that ruled with God's wisdom. Look, if God is humbling you, he wants to exalt you. He wants to do something important in your life, but right now, you're not ready for it. If he gave it to you right now, you would mess it up. And so the process, the humbling process needs to be complete before he can then raise you up. And I want to close with a, a quote 
um, from Ian Dubigid again, and my uh, iPad died, so I got to pull it up on my phone. I knew I was living on the edge. I only had 10% battery, <laughs> so I thought, you know, let's see what happens here. But this is really good, and I don't want you to miss this. So I'm going to read it to you. All right, here it goes. Because, you know, when we think about pride turns us into a beast, God humbles the proud, God exalts the humble. This all, for me, begs the question, why is God able to exalt the proud, and why is he able to, you know, humble the proud and then eventually exalt them because they've been humbled? You know, why is he able to do this? Why is he able to show so much grace? Well, the commentator, he says, we have to consider another king. This king could truly have looked out over all creation and said, is not this the world I have created for my royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? He didn't simply create one of the wonders of the ancient world like Nebuchadnezzar did. He created the world itself out of nothing. Yet instead of exalting himself, this king voluntarily humbled himself. Even though he was in very nature God, this king humbled himself and became a man. He left the comforts and glories of heaven and came to dwell on earth amongst humanity. A step downwards at least as large as when Nebuchadnezzar went to dwell with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Yet he took his humbling even further than that. This king took on himself the form of a servant. He healed the sick and preached to the poor and even washed the feet of his disciples. He carried this servant's form all the way to a criminal's death on the cross, even though he had done nothing wrong. What greater humbling experience could there possibly be than for the living God to die? Yet this king's humbling was not forced upon him because of his pride, On the contrary, it was a voluntary choice on his part so that he might redeem us from our pride. The one who by rights could legitimately have exalted himself, made himself lower than the angels in order to redeem a people for himself, this humble king is named Jesus. However, his time of humiliation is over, and now he is once again exalted in glory. Now he has accomplished our salvation and returned to the Father's side. Now this Jesus is the one to whom our doxology and worship is directed. The one in heaven to whom our eyes are lifted in adoration and praise. This is why the humble are exalted. Not because their humility is merited. Meritus, meritorious, something like that. But not because of their merit. I can't say it right. But because they fixed their eyes on their Lord, who was once humbled and is now glorified instead of looking at themselves. They are united to him so that his glorification means their glorification also. What is more, the vision of the crucified and exalted Jesus itself is cure for our overcoming pride. How can we exalt ourselves and continue to sing our own praises when our eyes are fixed on Jesus? The glory of his majesty as the uncreated creator 
reminds us of our smallness as created beings. He is the real tree of life. The true center of the universe, the one in whom and for whom all things exist, the one in whom all must come to find refuge. What have we accomplished compared to him? What is more, the scars that remain visible even now in his hands and feet as a lamb that was slain remind us constantly of their cause, our own depravity. In view of the incredible Mercy we have received, how can we ever boast in anything except the cross of Christ? As we contemplate Christ, once humbled and now exalted, we are reminded over and over of the profound fact that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our utter depravity. Yet at the same time, we are also reminded, foul as we are, we are far more loved than we ever dared to hope. So take your eyes off yourself and your accomplishments. Take your eyes even off your failures and disasters. Stop putting yourself with others. Instead, lift your eyes heavenward and look to Christ, the humbled and exalted king. His death and resurrection are the means by which you are restored to your senses and made welcome in the most exalted company, heaven itself. Put away your pride and your success. Be humbled by all of your sins and failures and revel in the extraordinary riches of God's mercy and grace to you. Lift up your eyes to heaven and praise God that, through, that though he humbles the proud, he also redeems and exalts the humble. And through his grace makes them fit to stand in his presence forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, we are so thankful for you and for your immense grace and mercy that uh, caused you to become, to experience the humiliating experience, the ultimate humiliating experience of even death on a cross. As you were mocked and spit on and treated as the worst of criminals, even though you had committed not one sin. Lord, and we recognize it's through your death and your resurrection that enables us to be reconciled to God so that we can experience the grace of God coming inside of us, working in us to reveal our pride in our hearts and to empower us to overcome it. We are so grateful. Lord, I pray that you would keep dealing with me and my pride. I pray that you would keep dealing with the people in this room and their pride. Lord, I pray that we would understand that our pride turns us into a beast. That we cannot free ourselves from our pride. And that you are intervening right now to free us. I pray that we would heed your warnings. I pray that we would lift our eyes to you. And that we would all in this room experience the exaltation that you desire to bring us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.